Welcome to the Smoke and Rope Podcast, the show that brings together Michigan's top cannabis growers, advocates, and business owners to offer a fresh and honest perspective of Michigan's cannabis industry. Stick with us to get the lowdown from the people who have been on the ground floor of cannabis business in Michigan and gain insights into where the industry may be heading. Welcome to the Smoke and Rope Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Basor, as always. Uh, today's episode 23. And we are all very excited to have on the director of the MRA, executive director, uh, Andrew Bisbo. Andrew, thanks for being on. Maybe the uh, first time I've ever gotten applause. I like that. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's coming. So, uh, of course, thanks uh, thanks for being on. And uh, today, the co-hosts we have uh, Sam Rosinski back from Fresh Coast Extra. Sam, what's going on? Where you been? Uh, head in the weeds, man. Head in the weeds. I'll say that. But it's ha- I'm happy to be back. So thanks for having me. On. You got it. Got it. Tom over at Real Leaf up in Kalkaska. Is it snowing up there? Well, we have snow on the ground, Ryan. Winter is finally here, so we're excited this week to have you, Director Brisbo. I don't know how many uh, states have <clears throat> their uh, the director of the regulatory body that is so open to talk to uh, to people, and it's uh, it's great, man. So looking for and Kevin over at True Cannabis. Hey, Kevin, what's happening today? Oh, not much. Same old stuff. Super excited to have Director Brisbo on the show today. I'm looking forward to really getting into it with them. So let's do this. <laughs> cool. All right. <laughs> well, uh, um, pretty. Uh, I-, I met uh, Andrew uh, a few years back, and um, it was uh, back, it was 2018. Uh, uh, he was the uh, director of the uh, Bureau of Marijuana uh, Regulations uh, and uh, for the medical program. And I like to play sports, uh, not sports, but I like to play bar, uh, trivia, and uh, Andrew does too. So I was at a, a local uh, pub with my team, and uh, um, I, I recognized Andrew. He didn't know who I was. I saw him sitting over there with just him and, and I think his brother, him and, and one other uh, lady, and they were holding their own and uh, I think sometimes beating us with our big squad of 10. So I figured he's a pretty smart guy at that point. And then... Uh, um, I know Andrew does his homework because he actually came up to me one of those days and said, hey, you Ryan uh, Basor? I said, yep, introduced himself. And uh, right around that time, uh, we were really involved with Prop 1 winning and uh, Dana Nessel getting elected. And, uh, you know, we just started uh, uh, get to know each other then. I, I was, uh, one of our mutual friends is, I have a lot of respect for, and I found out uh, Andrew's a, a Lansing uh, uh, Eastern guy, which I like. Uh, and um kind of took it from there so i I was really excited when got the role with uh, as executive director of the mra and the reason is is we heard a lot of uh lobbyists that were trying to get that role and uh you know people like to complain give andrew a hard time of course uh anyone but think about what would have been like if if we would have had a lobbyist in there trying to benefit from the situation so uh, i feel like uh andrew is in one of his dream jobs he loves it and he's he's in you know doing doing it and doing the best he can and has a uh, higher aspirations maybe uh nationally and that's that's awesome if that's so uh, we want to talk about the uh 
the Regulators Association, which is already happening. So um, with that, Andrew, thanks for being on. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more maybe about uh, your background growing up in Lansing and how you came to this position uh, as a you know Lansing uh, Eastern guy. Sure. Well, I appreciate you having me on, Ryan. I, I do like getting in and uh, mixing it up and having conversations. And I like this long form kind of thing better than I do uh, some of the more traditional media interviews where I have to, you know, craft a single sentence that's going to carry the day and get thrown in some context that I'm not sure about. So this is a much better uh, forum to have a, an open conversation. And yeah, I'm, I'm a Lansing guy, uh, born and raised, uh, grew up in a working class family, went to Lansing Eastern. Go Quakers. I don't, I, mean, I don't think Lansing Eastern is really even a school anymore. They moved it over to the middle school now. Uh, completely different environment uh, in, in Lansing from when uh, I was going through the school system. But I uh, went to Central Michigan, got my degree there uh, with the intention of running municipal parks and rec uh, programs. Uh, couldn't, couldn't really find a job doing that. So I drove a milk truck for a year. And just just uh, out of a recommendation someone made, started applying for jobs in, in state government and, and really grew to like working in the public sector. Uh, you're, you're not gonna get rich, but, and I think particularly the job I have now, I've always felt like I was doing something that was meaningful and serving a purpose and, and serving the citizens of the state. And I really liked that part of working in the public sector. My first job was working in the casinos in Detroit doing gaming regulation. I was a regulation officer, so we go do inspections and investigations, patron complaints. Uh, primarily in Motor City Casino, but I, I tooled around all, all three of the casinos there in Detroit. Um, but I lived in Lansing and wanted to get back this way, so I, I, I uh, took a job working at the Secretary of State managing, uh, managing branch offices, kind of grew to have an understanding of customer service there. Uh, so kind of learned the, the regulatory side of working in government and then focusing on customer service and licensing processes before coming to uh, what the time was DLEG, Department of Labor and Economic Growth. and and working in occupational licensing eventually there. Moved on to take on not just occupational licensing, but also public health code licensing, focusing on processing under the Snyder administration and, and learning to embed efficiencies into processes. And, you know, my, my, my move into this space was an interesting one. Um, Desmond Mitchell is, is our licensing director at the MRA and has been around for a long time. And Desmond and I have worked together for quite a while. And he was overseeing the, uh, the registry card program when it was still under the Bureau of Professional Licensing there. And I always remember thinking we were in those director meetings, like, I'm glad I don't have that guy's job. That that program just seems complicated. I don't really get it. It doesn't fit the mold of, uh, you know, what I'm used to with these old laws under the Occupational Code and Public Health Code. Um, and, and then when this opportunity arose, uh, Shelley Edgerton was the director of LARA at the time and just needed someone who could quickly implement a licensing program. We had to get it up and running quickly. Uh, you know, be able to issue licenses timely, write administrative rules. I had lots of experience doing all of those things. So I was just kind of the guy that was there in that place in time. But I've really grown to love it, uh, really digging into the policy side of things, thinking big picture. I like that it's complex and it's new and, you know, you don't have uh, a strong body of evidence that tells you this is what you're supposed to be doing and constantly retreading decisions that have already been made by previous administrations. We get to lay things out uh, in a new way. And it's really given a great opportunity to engage with stakeholders and kind of figure our, our way forward uh, versus, um, you know, kind of hiding behind um, the walls of governance and, and trying to do things our, our own way. I really like to hear from, from people who have ideas and, and try and determine the best pathway forward for the state. 
Thank, thanks, Andrew. That's uh, that's a good background. A lot of that I didn't know. Uh, so playing on that, can you tell? I, I, I'm really interested in it. I've read about it, and I'd love to hear it from you know Billy, the uh, the source. What is the uh, the new national you know cannabis regulatory association? Uh, how did that come about, and and uh, what is your role in it? And 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 just tell us more about it, whatever you can. I'm I'm fascinated. It, it had pretty organic beginnings. Uh, you know, as we were trying to build out the Michigan program, we reached out to some of our counterparts and made contacts in states like uh, Colorado and Oregon and Washington and Alaska to ask them, you know, what was your experience? Uh, what did you do well? What lessons did you learn? Uh, what could, you know, really trying to inform our perspective um, and consult with other regulators in, in the space. And, those four states had already started kind of collaborating over there in the in the uh, in the western part of the U.S. And so we all just started talking and decided, uh, you know, we we should get together regularly and have these conversations. We started having because uh, we'd see each other at various programs and, and presentations and seminars and the like. And so we started having regular calls, started getting together and actually having meetings. And we called it the Regulators Roundtable in the beginning. So that's really what it was. We all just kind of sat around as equals and just discussed best practices. And obviously, as we start to see things trend nationally, where we more, have more and more states adopting programs for legalization, medical or adult use, whatever it may be, that we can be a resource to each other. Uh, and, and in the more mature states, we're all facing a lot of the same issues at the same time. Uh, and so it's good to have each other to bounce those ideas off of. So we decided to formalize this group and it allows us to have an opportunity as a, as a formal group to establish a governance structure. Um, to your, like you were saying, Ryan, I'm on the, uh, the executive committee and one of the vice presidents of the organization it gives us also a chance to have a seat at the table as federal policy reformers being discussed to share our perspective, not really to advocate for, you know, legalization uh, or any particular approach to, to federal reform, but to, share our experience and to um, have input when it comes to some of those details when we look at how things might change federally, because it's going to change. Whether it happens now or in the next administration or in the administration after that, changes are coming. And we have a great deal of experience uh, in our roles in the various states administering our programs that I think can be of value to federal policymakers as that moves ahead. Hey, Andrew, this is Kevin over at True Cannabis. Um, as you know, all of us are, are members of the MICIA. Um, Robin uh, Schneider and Kevin McKinney always talk really highly of you. And um, so they always you know, direct us in, in the right direction. Um, and we, we appreciate that. Um, we appreciate you making yourself available. We had that uh, that uh, summer annual this year. I know we had some technical difficulties getting uh, you on the, on the big screen and all that, but uh, you were patient with us. And uh, we do appreciate you uh, making yourself available. Um, when it comes to the uh, to the national uh, association that you guys are working on, um, you know, when you get in the room with the other directors from the other states, I know that they have rolled out their their programs in different ways. Um, as I guess it's a two part question. What? How do you address when you guys are on different pages of things? Do you see that there is um, different incentive um, from different um, uh, directors to to do things? And then how do you guys go? How do you how do you start to draft? policy when 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 you when you started with the with the MRA and you had to write rules like how does that even start do you do you walk me through that process is it, is it starting with bulletin points i mean I, it's kind of like writing a script to a movie where where do you start 
Yeah, that, that was an interesting undertaking. So I'll, I'll, on your first question, uh, well, going back to the, 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 the gathering with the uh, MICIA, yeah, I was, I was really uh, bummed I didn't get to be up there in person. I, I, I really miss being able to do uh, presentations to groups and, and being out there and, and meeting with people in person. It's just not the same doing it uh, virtually a lot of times. And that, that was a little bit uh, challenging to, to sit there knowing no one could hear me and, and just waiting my turn. But I appreciate the invitation and the, you know, the ongoing collaboration with, the, uh, with, with Robin and Kevin and the MCIA. Um, yeah, so, so our group, I think we have pretty common high-level tenets that we, that we look toward, right? I mean, licensing and regulation in general is intended to be a public protection mechanism. So I think we have a lot more common ground than we have differences, and, and there's been a lot, of, a lot of focus on that. And we don't always have complete consensus, but that's why formalizing the group and adopting a governance structure is helpful so that we can ensure that we're focused on the areas where there is consensus. If, if there's not consensus among our group, then those are things that will likely be, be silent on. And we can all advocate for our particular state level perspectives. And, you know, we all work for different administrations in different states. Uh, the, the political sensitivities of, of different states, uh, you know, are always going to play a factor in terms of how we advocate for things at a state level versus with, with CANRA. And CANRA is not meant to be a political body. It really is meant to be a resource and, and to be an apolitical group of regulators. And you know it's not unprecedented. When when I was doing um, other regulatory programs, we we were a member of, of an association of uh, regulatory bodies in uh, accountancy and and architecture and uh, uh, engineering and surveying. You know, and it's it's it is an important collaboration because you do tend to have broadly speaking the same focus as as regulators. Um, yeah, one of one of the hardest things that we had to do was writing that first set of rules uh, on under the MMFLA and. Uh, but, you know, I'd, I'd had a lot of experience with that. We, we'd done that several times uh, in, in my career, particularly uh, I played a key role in developing continuing education requirements, which didn't have any backdrop uh, for certain professions. And so we had to write those from scratch as well. And, and the way we approached it under the MMFLA was to look specifically at the statute and focus in on those areas where the legislature had said we need to promulgate rules to define certain things. And then we looked at analogous industries where we thought we could borrow some language. We looked at what other states had done and really buried ourselves in the research. I know we had a couple of legal interns that, that were gathering a lot of information for us. Uh, and it, just like you said, I think we developed an outline first. These are the areas we need to cover and start filling in the details as you go. Uh, I, and I, I would hear people say, you know, what's taking so long to implement the program. But, you know, when you're starting from scratch and you have to build out an entire staff and write the regulations and build out the IT processes. It was quite an undertaking to get that done in a year. Uh, and I remember people saying over and over that we'd never get it done in a year. But now with the help of all the great people we have at the MRA, we've done it twice and done it rather successfully. But yeah, writing rules, I've always had the, the, uh, the focus that you look at what authority you derive from statute, focus in on those areas and fill in those, those gaps. Uh, but you really look at to the statute as, as your guiding light in terms of what you're supposed to be addressing. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, you know, when we were doing our application for the state uh, the first time, it was such a daunting task. It was like, like you just said, it's like, I don't even know where to start. But, you know, as I got into my my second application, I figured out some shortcuts on how to create a folder and and, and, and call it done. You know what I mean? And I would just go through and then just start to kind of just check things off as I go. And it, and it, uh, it made it a lot simpler. Um, 
back to the uh, the the summer uh, annual. You know, you're talking about getting fired up. You missed a, a great speech from Yosef Rabi on social equity. Um, hopefully, uh, you got a chance to hear about it. But man, he had that place going. It was it was really good. Yeah, I, I did get a chance to listen to Rep. Robbie's speech, uh, and, and was glad I didn't have to follow that up directly because you know matching that energy is, is quite challenging. And I know Rep. Filler uh, spoke very eloquently as well, though with a slightly different energy level. But I always like hearing you know legislative leaders speak on these topics and you know hear their perspectives on things, and and they, we collaborate with them as well, along with other leaders of led in the legislature. And I, I think that's of critical importance. It, cannabis is is an odd issue as it comes to politics. Uh, when, when I've historically done other licensing and regulatory programs, you kind of had a sense of where legislators were going to be just based on their party affiliation. But that's certainly not true in this space. Uh, it, it can be it can be unpredictable, uh, but it's a good topic to have uh, discussions over. And it's good to see more and more legislators being engaged on the topic as well. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Sam, you got a question? Hey, Andrew, uh, this is Sam over at Fresh Coast Extracts. Pleasure to virtually meet you there. I just really wanted to touch base with you on just this new national rollout and the committee that you're that you're um, now on. I know that you just spoke to about rolling out, you know, the MMFLA, the RTMA. Is is there any agenda that this national committee is now focused on? It, it, it's been in development. We've just recently decided to to establish some partnerships to help with the you know, administrative infra- infrastructure of our group, uh, and we're starting to work on laying out our priorities. And I think there'll be some some public announcement. I think in our initial press release, we did talk about some of the areas in which we're going to focus. So we want to be a resource for federal policymakers, uh, so they can can learn from our experiences. Uh, you know, we, we're really focused on helping new states uh, get up and running. Uh, provide resources to them so they understand what we've gone through. Uh, we can provide some technical expertise on certain areas, uh, you know, and really look toward some consistency uh, among states for certain things. Um, I always focus on testing standards as, as being one of the areas that is of critical importance for you know, public health, safety, and welfare. Um, but one of the challenges we face is there's no, there's really not a lot of sound science in cannabis. Uh, it hasn't been tested by the typical bodies that would engage in scientific research at the federal level. So we look at accepted methods for the tests and, you know, we need to have some, some, some more investment and time and energy put into um, how those standards are derived. And, you know, our, our agency has taken a lead role to work with the AOAC in developing some of those standards and validating the methods that are being used by our testing labs uh, to engage in some of those testing processes. So that's where this collaborative group of, of regulators can have a larger voice if we focus on the same issues because we're representing the perspectives of regulators from, you know, at this point, I think we're up to 24 or 26 states. Good sense there. And I, I appreciate you expanding on that. That was my follow-up question as well as, as we start to roll out this national plan, how will compliance roll over from state to state? Um, as a processor in Michigan, it's been it, it's been really tough for us with rolling out these new standards, working with different manufacturers that haven't been subjected to Michigan standards, particularly with heavy metals. Do you see that translating into other states? Focus uh, when we've developed our testing standards has always been to think ahead to what we think would happen at the federal level eventually uh, and to have Michigan representing the highest standards in the country to ensure that when we see 
opportunities for regional and national and maybe even international expansion that we're basing our decisions on standards that we think will be applicable in that space. Uh, you know, Michigan has had some well-documented issues with heavy metals getting into consumable materials in the last several years. So, so that's something that other states don't dig into very far, but we thought it was of critical importance. Uh, you know, we, we've consulted uh, with chemists and toxicologists uh, about some of those some of those issues and making sure that we are on the safest side of, uh, you know, developing those those standards. You know, how that ends up playing out nationally, I think that's why this group is going to play a critical, a critical role. There, there are a lot of different ways it could unfold. It could be it could be piecemeal. Uh, it, it could be all at once with a lot of engaged federal oversight. It could be something like what happened with industrial hemp, where the federal government simply says, we're going to have baseline standards and the states can do it themselves after that. Not knowing that uh, leads to a lot more questions and answers at this point. And that's why we want to stay engaged so that we can continue to plan ahead. I think it's important for Michigan businesses to be represented in those conversations as well. I always have that in the back of my mind. Um, you know, my, my focus is is on two things uh, and always has been, and you'll see that represented in the mission, the agent, mission of our agency. That's to create an environment that leads to business success for those businesses in Michigan and ensures that consumers have the safest possible access. Uh, so, so those two things aren't always on the same, you know, playing field. Uh, you know, what's, what's easier for business might not always be in the best interest of consumer safety and vice versa. Um, so I think it's our role as a state regulatory body to, you know, uh, defer to consumer safety where those things might be at odds, but where there's an opportunity for businesses to have greater latitude to, to make business decisions and it doesn't impact public safety in a negative way, then we should uh, allow them to engage in that way. That you'll find that the industry is largely behind you. And I think it's a lot easier to, to sway the industry's opinion, especially with having an industry that's so new, because safety and, and popular perception is so important to the industry's adoption. So we've been working in partnerships with local testing facilities and then also too, in, in we're in contact with the manufacturers so that we can generate good manufacturing practices to conform to those standards. So I want to let you know that there is an industry of folk that are behind the policy. And, and together we do have to make it a, a success. And I think that is legislatures such as yourself that do make it a success. And these these open forums and willingness to learn from the, the stakeholders has really made this industry a success. So, uh, you know, from from all of us here and especially myself, you know, thank you for your participation. We need another one of those applause breaks. I like that. Thank you, Sam. Nope. Hold on. Hold on. No. Nope. No. Uh... All right, our uh, our I'm gonna get one today. I'm gonna get one. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Andrew. Something more uh, that's very uh, dear to my heart is obviously uh, social equity. Um, I received I received a private grant from from Gage Cannabis, and you know it really helped me out to uh, be able to start my my uh, my brand and do it all. And you know it's 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 going it's going well for me, and I. Um, you know, I really appreciate from them. And that's something that I'm hearing, though, that is kind of the, one of the key pieces that's lacking. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask you how social equity, how you think it's gone so far. Uh, I love the attention to it, the, uh, the, the and then even having the different boards and committees to help. But what I'm hearing from people in the street is, uh, you know, all that's great. We need to help. It's great. But we need access to capital. So uh, mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit about the social equity, uh, what you've done so far and, and what you think maybe could improve it? Yeah, when we laid out the social equity program, 
uh, we really wanted to focus on how we could provide some dedicated resources to help individuals who came from those disproportionately impacted communities uh, whose lives have been affected by the prohibition era, you know, get into the regulated markets. Um, and, and we focused a lot on navigating through the licensing process. As, as Kevin mentioned, the first time you went to apply for a license with the MRA, it's, it's not a, a simple process. There's a lot that's included, uh, especially if you have a a complex business structure, which many businesses in this space have because of you know the, the tax implications and the, the illegal nature of the business at the federal level. And so we really focused on that. We had a lot of interest from applicants getting into qualifying as a social equity applicant. Where we haven't been as successful as I'd like is getting them to the point of uh, applying for licensure and achieving licensure. And to the point you made, Ryan, that, that's really still one piece of it. There are a lot of folks who want to get into the, in the industry in a variety of ways. Maybe they want to find employment in the industry or start a, an ancillary business of some kind. So the measurements of success are not linear in, in that regard. Uh, but we do want to see more licenses issued to social equity applicants. And we, we did a survey back in July uh, when we saw that we had you know well over 200 social equity uh, qualifying applicants, but had only issued, I think, three licenses at the time about what was stopping people from getting to that point of applying for a license. And we had three responses that, that captured about 75% of the concern. Uh, one was that their plans, uh, so no real surprises there uh, and not a lot we can do about it proactively. One was waiting for the municipality in which they wanted to operate uh, to adopt an authorizing ordinance. Uh, I think we've seen some progress in that over the last several months. I'm sure that we have a lot of those applicants in the Detroit area that have been waiting for Detroit to opt in, which they now have done, so that should help. And then the third was access to capital. Uh, other states have taken approaches as they've looked at equity and diversity and inclusion of providing funding, grant programs or, or loan programs, and, and we didn't have that. Uh, I, I looked to try and find some resources to issue grants to businesses. Um, we were looking at tapping into some funds that would have provided grants over a five-year period between, you know, say, fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars. But one of our follow-up uh, survey items to those to those applicants who said capital was their biggest hurdle was how much money do you need? And the response was somewhere between three and $500,000. So, you know, tapping into a pot of money and giving people $15,000 when they need $500,000 really still isn't solving that issue. Uh, so continuing to, to look at those issues, I, I formed the Racial Equity Advisory Work Group to talk about social equity issues, but also particularly issues of racial equity and diversity within the, the licensed industry. And one of the primary factors we were focused on was business development and access to capital. And that group is, is wrapping up its work. We actually meet Friday to decide on finalizing proposals and things that we may advance forward that need uh, policy uh, implementation at the agency level or administrative rules or even statutory changes in order to allow for um, you know, some of those key issues barriers to entry to be overcome. And, and again, this is where collaboration and, and outreach and, and education is so important is we, we sort of run out of ideas at the agency level. We weren't getting where we needed to be. So we need to bring in some outside expertise. We need to continue to collaborate with people who are engaged in the industry, uh, who want to be engaged in the industry, ask those tough questions and come up with solutions to those tough problems. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I, I, we do appreciate all the, the focus on it. And, you know, that's what Michigan, I think, is unique. And we can be the I'd like this to be the there on, on that, but do it the right way. Um, and I think we're, all, we're we're almost there. It's just uh, access to capital. So I mean, we can find it in the in the excise tax someday. <laughs> 
maybe, you know, it always gets, it always gets tricky when you talk about that, that pot of money and who gets it. And there are, if, if you look at the way in which the excise tax is distributed to, you know, fund funding roads and schools and local communities, like uh, th those are all good outlets. Those are all good outputs. So that's one of the hardest things to do in, in, in government. And thankfully, I'm not a legislator or a governor, so I don't tend to have to make those decisions. But, you know, it's it's what is the best utilization of that of those of those funds. And, you know, it and, it, and it's tough when you're trying to operate in the cannabis industry, particularly because you don't have access to traditional means where funding can be made available through the Small Business Administration, through, you know, local economic development programs. If they're federally funded, you're sort of kept out of that. Even going to the bank and trying to get a small business loan if they you know want to be equity minded as a financial institution. So those are all fairly unique challenges to what is a more global problem in business. Uh, of, of having adequate representation of minority-owned businesses and women-owned businesses. Um, but again, have to take those problems head on because we're, we're still in the infancy in this industry. So the more we can do now, the bigger the impacts are going to be down the road. Well, I think you hit it the nail right on the head with uh, access to capital being probably the largest uh, barrier to entry to the industry. Uh, I remember when we started our journey back in early 2017 with licensure, and uh, when we looked at the MMFLA capitalization requirements, at first, my first thought was like $500,000 started to grow. Give me a break. You know, I thought there's no way that's, that's unrealistic. I don't know where in the heck they got their metrics for this, but all right, we're going to move on forward. And, and, and um, you know, and, and we did. But as we got further along the process of our build out and uh, working towards regulatory, you know, regulations and kind of building the plane while it's flying in the early days of this thing, it became clear that that's actually not that far off, if not even a little low to some extent. So I think that is probably going to be our biggest hurdle. Um, now with the MMFLA, you had those capitalization requirements with the MRTMA, you do not. So things are about to change in March where people can now get into the industry uh, under the into the rec market, which is an ever expanding market right now, whereas the medical market is actually contracting is what I'm seeing. And I don't know if you're seeing it at the statewide level, but the people that I talk to are selling less medical, more recreation. Uh, you know, so people coming in wanting to apply for these recreational licenses, having some realistic idea of exactly what it costs for them to get in and not fail. I believe the capitalization requirement was there to ensure that companies that get in have the ability to stay in the industry and, and make it through the, the build out process. So I guess my question is, is there any way that people can, um, like you're saying, like looking for access to capital, if you if you're looking to get in, you don't have that. I mean, there has to be like, um, without having loans, traditional loans, there has to be uh, ways for people to, uh, to access those funds somehow. And if not, um, how is the potential merging of licenses, which is my next question, um, there's talk about merging the two um, acts together. Um, how is that going to uh, affect that whole capitalization requirement? Yeah, and I think our perspective on the capitalization requirement and its importance has evolved over time. I think in the beginning of the market, it was critical that the businesses that gained access through the licensing process were were successful. Uh, the the industry as a whole and the regulated side of the market had to be successful in the beginning. 
uh, as we now have successful businesses, we have a more stable market. I think it's important and, and, and appropriate for sort of the governmental uh, regulatory control to ease back and allow more of a free market system to evolve in that regard. Uh, th not every business is going to be successful, but it was very important that those early businesses were so that there was some stability in the market. I think our role in that as a governmental agency can, can be pared back a little bit over time now when we're in a more appropriate place with that for the long haul. Uh, and I, I think so, I, I think to your point, Tom, uh, the cat's out of the bag now. People know you're going to need money. I mean, you need money to run a business, but you really need money to run a cannabis business. Uh, it's a highly regulated industry. That's not going to change. There are hidden costs. The, the taxes at the federal level are exorbitantly high on a cannabis business. Uh, so, so those are those are more known, I think, than they might have been in the early stages. If you go back to 2016 to 2017, so I think more people understand what they're getting into when it comes to the, the costs of acquiring real estate and, and establishing cannabis business. We are considering and had a plan uh, to take legislative action to combine the statutes together, uh, and I think that's born of just you know an administrative desire to look at how the market's unfolding and keep policy sort of thoughtfully ahead of where the industry's shifting anyway. Uh, we still issue as many medical licenses as we do adult use licenses. Uh, I think that's gonna change dramatically over the next year. Um, we've seen the number of registered patients in the state go from almost 300,000 down to 240,000 within the course of about a two year period. Um, we see that supply as it's being generated by the producers in the industry is starting to increase, is increasing leaps and bounds in the medical or in the adult use space and starting to diminish in the medical space, right? If you're, if you're running a business, you're going to devote your energy and your investments uh, toward a market that has three to 4 million potential consumers versus one that has a static population of about 240,000. It, it only makes sense. Uh, and by and large, the way the, the agency operates is we look at the growing of plants, the processing, the testing, the transport, and the sale. And we have very few differences, except those that are specifically designated statute between a medical and adult use facility. Uh, so really in trying to create a business-friendly environment, an efficient environment, and a clear environment, we don't need to do that twice. We don't need to issue you two licenses in order to sell to, to two different groups. We just need to you know, distinguish that at the point of sale if that's important. But certainly on the supply side, whether you're growing a plant that's gonna be for medicinal or adult use, uh, we have almost the exact same standards. So it really becomes an arbitrary distinction in that regard. But for now, it's part of the law. So I think there's there's a more efficient way to go about that. Uh, we can still honor patient access. We can still uh, honor a municipal approach at this point that, that wants to stay specifically in the medical market. We can do a better job of ensuring ongoing and continuous patient access. And we can make it a more business-friendly environment to operate and do that all kind of at one time by simply folding those two markets together in a thoughtful way. Uh, absent proactive action, it's going to happen anyway, right? I, two years from now, would, would anybody still, being apply, still be applying for a medical license? Uh, I, I'm not sure they will be. And, and I think there's, there's other, another game to be made is in providing some clarity to municipalities. We get lots of questions from municipal officials, and I think in many cases, the lack of adopting authorizing ordinances isn't one of a prohibitionist mentality. It's more just confusion about the subtle differences between the MMFLA and the MRTMA, uh, not being clear on what their role is. Uh, we have 1,773 municipalities in the state, and a lot of them are quite small. They don't have permanent legal counsel. They don't necessarily even have attorneys on retainer to whom they can go to to ask some of those critical questions about what they can and can't do in their ordinances, what best practices and approach might be. 
And we're going to try and be more proactive at the MRA in providing some of that information and collaborating uh, with external resources to, to facilitate some of those conversations. But having one approach that's a little clearer for municipalities and, and sort of that yes, no, either either do it or don't, I think will help to, to get those who are interested but confused over the finish line so they can have uh, authorizing ordinances in place. I feel some of the confusion does lie with municipalities as far as the distribution of the excise tax funds too. Now that things have gone to the rec side and have changed, um, you know, getting clarifying those things are, you know, is crucial. And and you're right. I do believe merging the licenses together is, uh, is smart for everyone because there's some things that just, they just don't make sense sometimes, you know, on both a business and a, I'm sure an administrative uh, level. Andrew, I just want to tack on a question um, to Tom's there. And this kind of speaks to some of the things I've been reading about in the news. And we did the annual report um, just about last year's or this year's sales. And there seems to be this narrative certainly developing around the idea that there is going to be a merger between the medical and the adult use statutes. Um, How does that look from an inventory standpoint? Because I know right now that on the medical side, you're allowed to transfer up to 50% of a particular tag at one time. Do you see that process continuing? Um, Do you see there being a hard stop at a certain point? Or will both license classes all be tracked under, you know, one unified metric dashboard? How, how do you see that unfolding? Well, in the current environment under the under the laws as they stand now, we allow a relatively fluid transfer, uh, 50% going medical to adult use or back. It, it, it allows businesses to uh, uh, get the inventory in the place where it's at best use. Um, we have some statutory restrictions on the medical side that don't apply to the adult use side. So, for example, a retailer that owns multiple retail locations can transfer inventory between those locations to get the products in the place where the consumers want to buy them. Can't do that on the medical side because it's, it's more statutorily restricted. I think when, when we move ahead, there won't be a distinction uh, if we get statutory consolidation between, you know, say, a medical or adult use processor. They, they just won't be different things. So it, it's not going to really matter. Um, who the intended consumer is, unless we have different standards. Uh, so for example, right now with testing, there is a different standard for total yeast and mold for a medical uh, product versus an adult use product. I think that might be the only difference we have in testing standards. So we have to determine if that needs to stay or if we need to adopt a, a consistent standard. But you know, over time, um, you know, the plants and the products being produced won't be subjected to different standards and it won't matter who the end consumer is. The difference, uh, the goal of the difference is to just have a difference a distinction in the consumer making the purchase to determine whether or not they're subject to the excise tax and continuing to ensure that that patients are exempt from that. Hey, Andrew, you had mentioned earlier when you talked about merging the X that, um, you know, we, we could do it now or we could wait. And in a couple of years, it would just happen on its own because nobody would really apply for medical licenses. Um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a bootstrap guy. I've done this uh, all by myself, um, funded it all by myself, raised the money, um, not through investors, but by hard work. Um, and so I feel like I'm kind of your social equity applicant. Like once they get the money and they start rolling, they're going to be me. They're going to be that small guy clawing their way, trying to get to the, to the, to, to even the middle of the, of the pack to, you know, be successful. Um, you know, as we've rolled out these programs, we've had quite a few changes, um, allowing caregivers to bring in product for quite some time. Um, the transfer of med direct, um, and now we're, we're looking at merging the two acts. I guess my question is why not just let it happen organically? And, and the reason I say that is, you know, a lot of us 
budgeted and, and, and built our business plans around the way the, the law was written. And when there are changes that happen along the way, that, that creates bumps in the road and difficulties sometimes to navigate, figure out, and, and to remain successful. Um, so yeah, my, my question is, um, why not let it happen organically? Um, and I, I, I guess I, I feel like some of these things, when they're implemented, benefit the bigger guy. Uh, they have they have more uh, um, you know assets to be able to throw at things, and the smaller guy struggles. Maybe you can talk to us about that just a little bit. Yeah, and I think we need to be cognizant of that. You know, what are the impacts on businesses uh, of, of various sizes and any changes? And I think there are a number of ways to get to the end result that we're seeking, which is, you know, a consistent, efficient regulatory environment that doesn't make arbitrary distinctions between the type of businesses. Uh, my, my biggest concern, I'll, I'll give you uh, one one good example of, of just letting it happen organically and what a potential byproduct of that might be. And that is that there will be very few businesses that will operate in the medical space. Right? If, if you don't have to have a license on the medical side and you can get into that environment where you have a greater customer base in the adult use market, the vast majority of businesses logically would move into that into that space. Uh, so that's going to potentially then uh, the, the way the tax is levied, it's it's based on the type of license. So if there aren't provisioning centers, then patients are going to be paying the excise tax. There, there won't be a choice in that. Additionally, if you're in a municipality that only allows for, for a medical facility, uh, you might not have any supply. Uh, if, the, if the major suppliers in the space are able to, to be operating in the adult use space and are likely more able to compel their municipality to make that shift, if you are operating a medical provisioning center, you won't have access to any supply because the supply is all on the adult use side. There won't be any incentive to supply you there. So I think there will be repercussions for businesses. And this isn't a be all end all. I just think we need to talk through those solutions. And I think there's a way to do it to make it uh, beneficial for our businesses of all sizes while protecting the ability of consumers to, to get access. And, and those are some of the discussions that that I think need to be had. Um, and I don't have all the answers to that. That's why we're engaged with a lot of different interested parties as to how to make that transition. Yeah, and and I it's it's being seen. I, I I know that you are doing that, and I appreciate that, and and definitely lending your ear to us, and and letting you ask some of these tough questions. Hey, Andrew, I got one more uh, quick one, uh, and then uh, I know everyone's uh, some hard outs, and we'll wrap up. But uh, I love the fact that uh, I don't necessarily see it uh, in the other states, but you're out there uh, talking about well, we're going to be a three billion dollar market, possibly more. Um, that's great. That helps. Uh, you know, helps the valuation, I guess, probably of our businesses even. So, uh, you know, whether a lot of people, a lot of the regulators aren't, aren't putting that out there and aren't excited about it. seems like you are. Can you just real quick uh, talk about how you came about that, that, uh, that as far as the valuation of our market, where you think uh, and how it's going to be there? Yeah, I think it was important as we were engaging in this to look at what the market was going to grow to be. And so we actually commissioned uh, some, some, folks from the economics department at Michigan State University to, to engage in that, that study. And they were able to do that independently and present their results to us. So they, they looked at uh, population statistics in Michigan, used you know accepted economic models. They looked at existing states, primarily Colorado, uh, in terms of how that grew, uh, looked at survey data that looked at you know anticipated consumers and consumption rates. Uh, to give us some interesting information. If you haven't had a chance to look at it, it's still right there on the front page of our website. And you can see their analysis of what the total economic impact is in terms of 
dollars. And so I throw that $3 billion around because that, that's a good number. But it also estimates the job creation, both direct and indirect, uh, of the success, the success of the cannabis industry. Uh, looks at how much supply is necessary to meet that demand in terms of raw flour that needs to be produced uh, in metric tons. So that's all good data for us to have. So we can see as the market's evolving and as businesses are engaging, gives them sort of a baseline understanding. I know there's probably a lot of uh, operators in the industry that are engaging in independent analyses as well. Um, I was hoping that those would be more published so that we could see other perspectives and, and analyze things. But uh, I just think it's important to understand where the market is heading. Uh, it helps inform policy making decisions and helps us understand where we are in the grand scheme of things. It, you know, it's been growing so fast this year. It's really interesting to think of that in the perspective of how much growth could there be. And I think if we didn't have that analysis in the back of our pocket, it, people might have gotten ahead of themselves thinking that this growth rate would continue. Um, and if that were to be the case, you'd have people predicting we'd be at $10 billion within the next three years. And so we need to kind of temper our enthusiasm and understand what's what's realistic. Uh, that's great. I'm uh, actually going to go check that out on the website after this, download it and be some, some fun reading tonight. Uh, but uh, with that, uh, we got to wrap up a little bit here and uh, a few of us got some, some, uh, some hard outs here and I want to let everyone go ahead and close with some final thoughts and i'll start with sam over at fresh coast just again thank you so much for your time and your dedication to the industry we really appreciate not only the face time that you're providing communities such as calcasca where tom and i are but also to your willingness to accept stakeholder input so we really do appreciate you so thank you for your time today tom over at real leaf up in calcasca uh, Director Brisbo, again, thank you so much for being here. These conversations are important to have and to continue to have these um, meetings between all the stakeholders to ensure that our uh, our industry in Michigan stays strong and doesn't turn into an Oregon situation. You know, and we know that having people like you at the helm that have the the greater good of uh, the businesses and the safety of the patients in mind, um, you know, that that's really helps it. And I, I just want to say thank you so much. Kevin over at True Cannabis. Yeah, I just want to, you know, echo what Tom and, and Sam have said. Um, you know, I know that there's been times where we've been in in different meetings and I've I've been hard on you. I've asked you tough questions. I've put you in a pinch. Um, that's all for for the good of the industry. I'm all I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing. I want to see an anti-monopoly industry in Michigan that can thrive on the backs of people like myself who are caregivers. Um, but I do I do want you to know that I do appreciate you. I appreciate your hard work. Robin and Kevin are always telling me that you you're always available. You're you're open to discussion about anything. And uh, I can't thank you more. Uh, it, it, it's been great so far, and I and I, I wish you luck moving forward. I, I, I wish you a, a happy uh, a New Year and, uh, and Merry Christmas, and uh, hope you guys stay safe. Okay. Thank you. And Director Brisbo, any final uh, words of wisdom for the the industry out there? You know, I appreciate the the positive sentiment. I always. Uh, like engaging with stakeholders in the industry. We've been committed all along to, um, you know, outreach and, and education and collaboration. And that's going to continue to be the case as long as I'm uh, at the helm here at the MRA. And we've got a really good team that's more than willing to help and provide answers to questions where we have them and, and keep the hard questions coming. But because I think that's how real conversations happen and how we make progress. Um, and, and for the love of God, would somebody just name a strain after me? I mean, that, I, I need to have some kind of legacy here and it's quite embarrassing that I don't have one.
do you want it, do you want it to be actually called the Andrew Brisbo or do you have another name in mind? I, I, you know, we use you, you guys are the creative types, right? I, I'm I'm the boring government guy. So, what type of strains do you like? <laughs> nope. Oh man! All right. Well, that uh, that just got the wheels turning a little bit. Um, so uh, you know, like. As we're signing off here, I do feel like we're, we're lucky. Uh, we talk about Michigan being a little bit different and how we have aspirations for Michigan being the, the number one spot in the world for, for cannabis. And we love the, the small guy and the, and the competition. Um, but part of that is uh, for us to ever be considered with uh, California is, uh, you know, they're, they're a mess out there with their regulatory. So um, Andrew now is is part of that and part of our success and part of the history. And uh, we need it's just become more and more apparent as we, we progress how important that is to have your state on your side, the regulators on your side. And, you know, we have we've had conversations even about social use lounges and, you know, the sentiment from Andrew and his team is, we want you guys to be successful and we're going to help you along the way to figure out, uh, to turn this into an economic model that works. So, uh, I love that. That's all you can ask for after years of getting the, the crap kicked out of us. It's, uh, it's refreshing. And, uh, uh, director, I am glad, uh, we got you in Michigan. So with that, uh, we'll see everyone next week. The smoking rope podcast is produced and hosted by me, Ryan Basor, the owner of redemption cannabis. Have ideas for episode topics or would like to be a guest on the show? Contact us at ryanb at redemptioncana.com. Thanks for being along for the journey.